0: Live from Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. Glad you could join us tonight, or if you're watching us through the archives, whatever it is. Those of you who are here, I'm Sean McCraney, your host. Let's open up with a prayer, and we'll go from there. Lord, we pause and thank you for life. We're grateful for uh, your hand in things that we see and recognize and the things, all the things that you do that we don't even uh, acknowledge. And we're sorry and we seek you and we pray that your spirit will be with those who are seeking for truth. Help us as we uh, contribute thought and prayer and dialogue and discussion to the show tonight. And just uh, be with Alex as he plays and all of our volunteers and staff. Lord, we just want to help promote you to the world as the only solution both for this life and for the next. And we pray for this in Jesus' name, amen. Take a look at this. The spirit is the gunfight. The spirit is what we want to rely on in reaching people. And we don't want to use the word of God, though it is sharper than any two-edged sword, to stab and kill one another with. In my humble opinion, Knife to a Gunfight is one of the most important books that uh, we've produced in um, ever, and we hope you'll give it a chance. It's about misinterpreting the purpose and place of the Bible. It addresses the great things about the Word of God, uh, the book I spend my life in, love it. But this book goes into how we've taken this, the Word of God, and we've used it as a knife and we've stabbed each other with it, and we've parted each other with it, instead of uniting with the content and letting it build us up in love and in the spirit. So consider getting it, hotm.tv, knife to a gunfight. we're back. (laughs) There's many ways to do a shameless plug. And how about a song tonight from our own Alex Pollock, sharing his talent with you and for the Lord.
1: I'm treating my sorrows, I'm treating my shame, I'm laying them down for the joy of the Lord. I'm treating my sickness, I'm treating my pain, I'm laying them down for the joy of the Lord. Yes, Lordy, yes, yes, Lord. Yes, Lordy, yes, Lordy, yes, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, yes, Lordy, yes, yes, Lord. Amen. I'm pressed, but not crushed, persecuted, not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. I'm blessed beyond the curse, for his promise will endure. And his joy is going to be my strength. sorrow may last for the night if joy comes with the morning. Yes, yes, yes. I'm trading my sorrows. I'm trading my shame. Yes, I'm laying them down for the joy of the Lord. Hey, I'm trading my sickness. I'm trading my pain. I'm laying them down for the joy of the Lord. Mm. We say, Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. Yes, Lordy, yes, Lordy, yes, yes, Lord. Yes, Lordy, yes, Lordy, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. Amen. We say, Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. Amen. Amen.
0: We worship you, Lord. Amen. Yes. Thank you so much, Brother Alex. Love your music. You can hear Alex next week as Matt Slick will be here for two hours. A two-hour special from 7 to 9 p.m. Tuesday next week. And uh, a special time as we're going to discuss a lot of things. Uh, I know Matt particularly wants to address, uh, from his point of view, uh, things about the Trinity. Uh, but we're going to cover, I, I think, 13 topics, I hope. And uh, I want to reason with Matt. And he's going to give me his, his, uh, his biblical take on it. And his biblical take is pretty astute. Uh, he knows his stuff, uh, without a doubt. And we are brothers in the Lord. But it's going to be interesting. Uh, Matt associates with a lot of people who consider me either on one end really heretical to the other end of considering me to be not a Christian. And those are his friends and brothers. Uh, Matt is willing to come here and talk. And, uh, And I like him as a person. I don't agree with him on a lot of things, but it's going to be fun. So you guys at home and here in the audience, be prepared to come with questions. We'll have an open mic. We're going to keep the screen up for questions. And uh, we're gonna go through those topics and try to talk them over. And with that, why don't we have a little moment from our board of direction? All right, you know, we talk a lot about being uh, bearers of fruit, and often when uh, we talk about being Christians, There's a lot of focus on us being Christians in our word, in our deed, and, and, and the fruit we're supposed to bear. You're supposed to be bearing fruit. But I want you to notice something about this little illustration here. This little tree is a mature tree. And it took a long time for it to get to this spot where it could start producing these little round uh orbs of fruit. People often ask, how can I be a better Christian? What, do I, what can I do to walk the Christian walk? And uh, I'm going to borrow from uh, Isaiah 37, 31, where it says, and the remnant that is escaped from the house of Judah shall take root downward and bear fruit upward. And, and I just want to take that concept and I'm going to just title it, the deeper the root the greater the fruit and you'll notice that when it comes to let's just call this the uh ground all right and we'll liken this ground to the word of god okay and once we are planted this is the seed and once we're planted in that in that ground and we're in that planet, in that Word of God, whether it's Jesus or the written Word of God, it can be one and the same. We've got to start, we're going to get watered by the Spirit, by the Word, and we're going to start developing roots. And notice how much has got to take place before we even sprout through that soil. We've got to get some roots going downward before we can bear fruit upward. And notice how much it's going to take for this to start to bloom into any kind of a plant and how many years it will take before this plant, this seed gets to maturity where it's actually a trunk with branches that's sustainable to hold those pieces of fruit that God seeks to get. It takes a long, long time. And the most important thing about this illustration is that this seed remains in the ground. It receives the water. It receives nourishment, and it continues to dig deeper and deeper with its root into the soil before it ever is expected to produce that fruit upward. A daemon. Uh, so uh, just understand that this is where we have babes in Christ, and young children in Christ, and teenagers in Christ. And start to get up to adulthood and finally when you're mature enough the Lord will see fit for him to start producing fruit through his spirit through you not before now what religion does is it says we want to see you doing this right off the bat we want you to accept religion and just start producing this but that's not how God does it at all he does it through this mode even though it's not as colorful and I hope that makes some sense with that, why don't we go back and we'll pick up or continue our discussion that we were talking about last week regarding the Satan or Satan. My uh, good friend and brother, Reed the Aphorist, he came up with a sign that he wants me to put in my non-existent office and it would say, Sean McCraney, Slayer of Sacred Cows. Please know that I, slay, I don't slay them for the purpose of slaughter or to destroy people's foundations. I'm not an iconoclast for iconoclasm's sake. Um, No matter the cost, I want to seek God in spirit and truth like you. And uh, because this is life eternal. And so if there's a cow that stands in the roadway to heaven and it doesn't belong there, I, I will try to kill it. But it's not because I just enjoy the slaughter. It's because that thing should not be in the way between us and god and so we continue on with our topic about satan and we talked a little bit about the term serpent last week and how it is mentioned in the garden of eden and that many people believe that that word serpent uh, refers to a snake and that you have to decide is this literal was it literally a snake talking or was it figurative and was it a man or not a man but was it satan The fallen angel talking, or was it a fallen angel talking through the serpent? And we talked all about how that word, nakash, in the Hebrew doesn't fit with that English term serpent. Let's continue on. Satan, in both Mormonism and Christianity, is viewed as God's enemy and as a fallen angel. Of course, Mormonism views angels differently than Christians, and so that's a whole other subject. Mormons teach that Satan is a spirit son of God, okay? A spirit son of God who was born in the morning of the pre-mortal existence. So if we have a pre-mortal existence and that's going to encompass a 24-hour period, Mormons believe that Satan was born in the morning of that creation, meaning he was one of the brighter stars, one of the brighter intelligences to come into creation through God the Father and his wives. Uh, the Book of Mormon in 2 Nephi 2.27 teaches that Satan seeks to make all men miserable like unto himself. And this seems to be because he was cast down from the pre-mortal existence to earth and he didn't get to get a body like the other humans had and uh, because he rebelled in the pre-mortal council. So, because Satan is considered an actual spiritual son of God, and because Jesus is also considered an actual spiritual son of God, the father and his wives or wife, Jesus and Satan and all the rest of the human race who took bodies on are are considered brothers and sisters in the premortal existence. And you just have to understand that's the LDS view of Satan or who they also call Lucifer is that he was an early creation in the pre-mortal existence creation of spirits along with Jesus and then the rest of the human race and we are all linked being spirit brothers and sisters this differs so greatly from the Christian view who says Jesus the word of God prior to taking on flesh the word that he created all things That includes all the cosmos, all the heavens, all the earth, all the animals, and all the angels, including Satan. Jesus is the creator of all things, and this differentiates greatly from the LDS view that Satan is Jesus' spirit brother. As we said last week, scholars and critics of Scripture have a number of ideas that say satan in christianity has morphed over time and he is what he is today through a series of these transformations for instance last week we talked about how christians today when we read genesis and we read about the serpent that we say well this was a snake and this was satan or this was satan and he was a snake and we find out in the garden of eden that uh, this account, nowhere in the Old Testament is this connection made. We don't see that connection made at all until we get to Paul in the, in the New Testament. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about serpents. We might wonder if it was even Satan speaking through what is called a serpent in Genesis 3.1. Let me read this passage to you. The serpent was, apparently of its own accord, more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God made. Now that sounds like more like a created animal, that the serpent was a created animal that was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Not an angelic being who had fallen to earth. Now I could be wrong on that, that's just one thing to look at. But to add to this idea, God then says to Eve, I will put hatred between you. And the woman, it says to Satan, I will put hatred between you and the woman and between your seed, Satan, your seed, Satan, serpent, and her seed, Eve's. And it shall bruise thy head and thou shall bruise his heel. When you read that, does Satan have seed? Or was he talking to a serpent that had seed? what was that what was god saying to the serpent when he said i'm going to put hatred between you and the woman and between your seed what's the seed of satan are we talking about other angels that's not the seed of satan those are angels god had created so what does that mean when he talks about satan's seed or the serpent's seed versus eve's seed so i'm going to jump down those you guys uh uh kathy mags following on the graphics uh We might also ask why on earth did God tell Moses if the serpent was so vile and evil and cunning and below everything else, why did God tell Moses, listen, I want you to build a brass serpent and put it on a pole and I want you to hold that brass serpent up and when the children of Israel look to it, they will be healed from the stings of the fiery serpents why did god have moses create a serpent nakash in the hebrew same as the serpent name that's in genesis put it on a pole and have the children of israel look to it in order to be healed that doesn't make any sense that this brass serpent would be lifted up in the wilderness as a symbol of christ for the children of israel to be healed okay anyway we're going to move on from that debatable point it's just some things to think about but in the Old Testament, there is only a very subtle inference that Satan was an evil force or influence that was in operation against God. That was something that came about later. During the Old Testament, we don't have Satan being a, an oppositional force of its own, of his own that fought against God, okay? The story of Job talks more about Satan in the Old Testament than any other book. And there we read, the sons of God gathered together and Satan was among them. Now that's a really strange way to describe that Satan would be there among the sons of God, isn't it? It appears from this reading that Satan is more an accuser that God used under his direction to go out and test and try people according to his direction. Harold says, the Old Testament God is seen as the source of both good and evil. Now this is a remarkably different stance than what we have today. But in the Old Testament, God was the one who authored good and evil, all the way through it. Satan was not the one who was doing it. It was God and it was all laid to his charge. As we progress toward the New Testament, we see Satan change in terms of his vileness, and he becomes the one who is fighting against. I'm not saying that's wrong, but I am saying when we look at the Old Testament, that was not the case. Let me give you some examples. In Exodus 4.11, it says, And the Lord said unto him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who maketh the deaf, dumb, the seen, or the blind have not I the Lord. So there we have God saying, I'm the one who makes people dumb, I'm the one who makes them deaf. When we get to the New Testament, they have a demon, but in the Old Testament, it was Yahweh who was the one who was causing these things to be. In Deuteronomy 32 39, we read, See now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God with me, I kill. And I make alive. Do you notice that language? I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. Now this is Yahweh. This is not Satan. We aren't saying Satan kills, Satan destroys. God doesn't. We have God taking responsibility for what he says is good and evil. Job says to his complaining wife in Job 2.10, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speak. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil, meaning from the hand of God? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. The psalmist, speaking of God, said, He turned their heart to hate his people, to deal subtly with his servants. Isaiah 45, 5 says, I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, thou hast not known me, that thou may know the rising of the sun from the west, and there is none beside me. I am the Lord, there is none else. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Amos 3, 6 says, Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? Shall there be evil in a city and the Lord has not done it? All these examples, Yahweh says, I'm doing it. It's me. Okay? Get that clear. That is the Old Testament message. I'm not a heretic. Biblical scholars will attest to this. Does not mean things didn't change as we went and gained more information as we get closer to the New Testament? But nevertheless, this is what we stand on that. Isaiah says, O Lord, why hast thou made us to err from thy ways and hardened our heart from thy uh, fear? Lamentations 3:37 says, "Who is he that saith, and it cometh to pass when the Lord commandeth it not? Out of the mouth of the most high proceedeth not evil and good?" This stuff is really paradoxical. It's tough to understand when we just take it in and of itself. Job opens, the book of Job opens, verse 21, "Naked came I out of my mother's womb, naked I shall return thither. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away; blessed be the name of the Lord." You lose somebody to cancer, Job would have said the Lord took him. Everything would have been on the Lord. Nothing would have been assigned to Satan. I know it's different. So I mention this not to suggest that there's no Satan. Uh, There is, certainly. But I'm trying to start to explain it from a biblical purview. Harold writes about ancient Israel and Satan. He says, quote, the concept of another supernatural power beyond God's control causing evil was not conceived of in their belief system, end quote. That's a, I mean, look at that. Remember what 1 Samuel 16, 14 says. But the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. Now, I know there's all kinds of apologetic answers for this, but there's a preponderance of scriptures that clearly show Yahweh was in charge of light and dark, good and bad, suffering and joy, all of those things in his control. In his book, A History of the Devil, Gerald Messadee summarizes the Old Testament view of Satan and says, the essential thing is that until the 3rd or 2nd century B.C., the image of Satan as God's declared enemy is absent from Judaism. Satan and demons, who do not seem to have a master-servant relationship, the former being nowhere referred to as the chief of the latter, are the servants of God. As troubling as this may seem, the texts are there to prove it. End quote. Additionally, and listen to this, The Hebrew term translated to Satan is Ha Satan. That's the article. It's Ha Satan in Hebrew. And it literally means the Satan, the Satan, the accuser. It doesn't mean accuser, it doesn't mean Satan, it means the accuser, the Satan, all Old Testament. As if it's his role, his title, his assignment. As the accuser, the sons of God gathered, God gathered together, and Satan, the accuser, was among them. That's how we would understand that. That's why we have passages like, now there was a day, when, oh, I already said that, Job 1.12, And the Lord said unto the Satan, Behold, all that Job has is in thy power, only upon himself put not thine hand. So the Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord, and he did his deal with Job. That's the way that it was pictured. Yahweh, God, is everything. He controls it all. And he said, how about my servant Job over there? Hey, accuser, accuser, come here. Go after him. Let's see what he does. Accuser, oh, I'll have this. Oh, really? I don't think so. And they do a little, almost like a wager. Um, That was the Old Testament construct. Elaine Pagels, in her book, The Origins of Satan, page 39, says, Thus Satan is not the name of any particular let alone evil character. The Harper Collins Bible study says, quote, the use of the article ha before the word Satan in Hebrew makes clear that this is a title and not a proper name. The Satan is a member of the divine council whose task it is to discover and indict malfactors, end quote. Very different picture than what we get when we start talking about Satan from the New Testament perspective and then forward into church history and then even to modern day today. And we're gonna get to that after Matt Slick next week. So we've had a shift in meaning from the Old Testament to today. I'm not denying this. And I'm not saying that it means there's a trouble today with how we've seen uh, Satan. But I just wanna point out that this has changed as time has gone on. Could it be, listen to this, That the accuser of God, maybe the sons of God, God said, hey, I'm going to have you be the accuser. And prior to Christ taking on flesh, the accuser fulfilled his role and did what God told him to do. Could it be that when Christ took on flesh, that the accuser suddenly thought at that point in time, I'm going to embody evil now. And, and so Jesus personifies him as the father of all lies and all these other things, because when the word became flushed, maybe the darkness became embodied it too. I don't know. I mean, it gives, it's as good an answer as anything else as to why it shifts for me. What we do know is that the Satan was either in development during the old Testament times was processionally revealed over a period of time to men through Scripture till we get to the New Testament, or it or he did not apparently operate or exist in the Old Testament the way he existed in the New. Those things have to be admitted into a discussion about the Satan and about who he is. One thing before we go on to the New Testament ideas of Satan, the LDS, and then Satan's place in Scripture today, if Christ has had the total victory And that is, let's just talk about the name Lucifer for a second. Christians, Latter-day Saints alike, have all taken passages from Isaiah 14 and used them as a proof to show that another name for Satan is Lucifer. And it's so juicy Lucifer to use that name that we just love it and we think it really is speaking of Satan. Uh, In fact, I'm going to read the passage to you from Isaiah 14, and I'm going to talk to you as if they're talking about Satan. And if I do the right inflections through some of these passages, I might be able to convince you that Satan is Lucifer. Because when you read what's said there, it sounds like it's describing what we have been taught happened to Satan from the beginning. All right. I'm not going to read it all, but it's starting at verse 9 in Isaiah 14. It says, Hell from beneath is moved for thee, to meet thee at thy coming. It stirreth up the dead for thee, even all the chief ones of the earth. It has raised up from the thrones all the kings of the nations. And we drop down. Thy pomp, verse 11, is brought down to the grave, and the noise of thy vials. The worm is spread under thee, the worms cover thee. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. And the narration says, Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit. They that see thee shall look narrowly upon thee and consider thee, saying, Is this the man, the man? That made the earth to tremble, that did shake kingdoms. and it goes on and on and on and on. Pastors have read from those passages. They have said, this describes Satan. This is Lucifer, son of the morning, the LDS say it's in the, pre- the morning of the preexistence that he came from. Could it be, could it be that these verses are not talking about Satan at all? Well, it could, because they're not. Now they might be indirectly. And I'm, I'm open to that. But originally and in contextually, they are not talking about Satan or a, a, a spiritual evil being named Lucifer at all. Their primary purpose, and any Christian scholar will tell you this, the name Lucifer and the son of the morning have nothing to do with Satan in their original text here. How do we know this? Just read verse 4. It says that thou shalt take up this proverb against the king of Babylon. That is who is being described there. The king of Babylon. Point blank. We like to read scripture in context, that's the context of the passage. The proverb is against two, the king of Babylon. Verse 20 of that chapter says, Thou shalt not be joined with them in burial because thou hast destroyed thy land. You have to understand that if you want to see something in scripture, you'll see it if you've been uh, presupposed to see it in that way. But if you take the time to look at what the other passages are saying, you can clearly see it was talking about a human being who can be buried who destroyed the land, who was a king in Babylon, and that's the context of those passages. It was not uncommon for Hebrew literature to take earthly kings and compare them to deities. And if an earthly king was going to fall to say, you have fallen from heaven, that's the way they would write it. And so that's what they were writing about this king of Babylon. Almost every respectable Christian scholar admits that Isaiah 14 has a primary reference to the king of Babylon, but many say, but it also is talking about the Satan. Unfortunately, the Hebrew expression that is translated Lucifer in English, Lucifer, is Halal ben Shakar, which means shining one, sun of dawn, okay? That's what the Hebrew Hellel uh, Ben-Shakar means, shining one, son of dawn. Where did Lucifer come from? It was made up by somebody. We're going to get to that in a second. But when you read the Hebrew, it's Halal Ben-Shakar, and it means the shining one, son of dawn, attributed to the king of Babylon. All right. An article, an anthropologist looks at the Judeo-Christian scriptures uh, by Richley H. Crapo, his name uh, points out that the gods of Near Eastern religions were often identified with stars and planets. For example, the planet Venus is called Hallel, son of the moon god Shahar. According to Near Eastern mythology, Hallel was banished from heaven for trying to usurp the throne of the most high God for the assemblies of the gods, and it is Hallel who Isaiah gives as a metaphor name to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Uh, that's what happens in those passages. Isaiah takes that imagery, Hillel, son of the morning, and he assigns it to the king of Babylon. All right, That's where we get all that. Therefore, the Hebrew term translated into the English or, or Latin, Lucifer, is a reference to the non-Israel astral god, not to Satan, not to the evil deity of Satan. That's the original context. So, where did Lucifer-Satan connection come from, that the Latter-day Saints and the Christians still use today? From Jerome. Turn of the 5th century, he took Hillel, and in the Latin Vulgate, he gave us Lucifer, which means light-bearing. Hillel means light-bearing, and which was the Latin name for Venus as well, the planet Venus. But even then, it wasn't a synonym for Satan. But because many Christians then, Jerome Jerome, uh, believed also that this passage alluded to the Satan, Lucifer eventually became a popular name associated with the, the Satan. And that's how it happened. It's a Latin name given to a Hebrew title that referred to an ancient pagan god. That's all it was. Professors T.J. Ray and Gregory Mobley, in their book, The Birth of Satan, Tracing the Devil's Biblical Roots, says that, quote, post-biblical, post-biblical, it means after the Bible, writers are responsible for connecting the dots between Daystar, Lucifer, and Satan, an identification that was never made in the Bible, Now we say, we follow the Bible, we go after the Bible, it's the Bible, it's the Bible, and yet we will pass along these myths, like the LDS pass along theirs, just because post-biblical writers have pushed that on us, and we've done it. (coughs) (coughs) Lucifer, a morning star, with Satan, the prince of darkness, has never made sense. It caused Adam Clark, that commentator, to say... I'm utterly bewildered why Christians would ever link Lucifer, which means the morning bright star, and actually morning star is tied to Jesus in the book of Revelation. Why Christians would tie morning star to Satan, who is the prince of darkness, darkness. It's in it doesn't make sense. The text speaks nothing at all concerning Satan, nor his fall, nor the occasion of the fall, which many divines have with great confidence deduced from this text, says uh, Adam Clark. But the important thing that we've said here, all the stuff we brought up about Satan, and I'm going to leave and come back to in two weeks after Matt Slick visits with us, is that Mormonism, which is supposed to be the restored gospel where Joseph Smith restored all the truths back to the earth and cleaned everything up, has borrowed straight from this mythology, and they use Lucifer in their own writings to describe Satan. It shows you, it's here and in places like it, where we can, as Christians, clear up our own house, not allow these little myths to uh, uh, be here, and we can say, look, you guys have copied something that was a mistake. We can show that you are not the, uh, the restored gospel. You have plagiarized a fa- the false elements of the gospel. You get it? Let's open up the phone lines. 801-590-8413. 801-590-8413. While the operators are clearing their calls, take a look at this. Genius. Oh, so gripping. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, (laughs) Let's go to the emails. This is from Richard R. I usually follow your messages pretty good, but you sort of lost me on this one. Backsliding, as it were, or losing your salvation, he says, uh, this is shiitake. Uh, And then he goes on and says, and he explains why he just doesn't believe that it's possible, etc., etc., Listen, it's not you can lose your salvation. You're not going to receive Christ by faith and then fall into sin and lose your salvation because you fell into some sins that are against God. You have been covered by his grace. That is not what I'm implying. But God is a gentleman. He, is not a, 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 he does not enforce salvation upon you, and you cannot get out of it if you don't want and so scripture clearly says, that you look at Hebrews 3, you look at Hebrews 6, you look at 1 Peter, you look at Hebrews 10, clearly says, listen, if you turn from your faith, from your faith, if you turn from acknowledging Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior, as the author and finisher of your faith, and say, I don't believe that anymore, there is no more propitiation for sin. There's no more. It's done. It's not the up and down. We go through this all the time. It's not, oh, I failed. Oh, I've, I'm doing good. Oh, I failed. It's not that. It's not doubting God sometimes. It's not wondering if he's there. It's to shake your fist and say, God, I don't care. I don't believe you. I don't believe your son. I'm done with this whole bit. Goodbye. That is what it's talking about. And when that occurs, there's no more propitiation for sin. And I am convinced I could be wrong, but I'm convinced myself that God allows us to do that if we want. Now, you'd say, well, who would want? Well, all I do is go to the story of, of Satan. If he fell from heaven and he rebelled against God while in God's presence, then I certainly believe it's possible for somebody who has the Holy Spirit within them to say, I don't want it anymore. We all know as Christians, we ebb and flow. We all know that we could push our flesh out there so far, and we could get ourselves so far out there that we could get to a point where we would say, I really don't care about you anymore. This is what scripture warns about, and there'd be no reason for the apostles to warn about it if it wasn't possible. No reason at all. And yet they constantly warn about it. Let's go to Sean in Susquehanna, Pennsylvania. Whoa, this is kind of funny. I served My mission in Susquehanna, Mormon mission in Susquehanna, Pennsylvania, and our caller spells his name the first way I did. Hope he's not someone I know. Hello. You're on Heart of the Matter, Sean.
2: Oh, hey, Sean. How are you?
0: I'm doing well. Susquehanna, huh?
2: Yeah. Joseph Smith lives there and everything.
0: I know, I know. I I actually helped baptize uh, my uh, mission president's son on the banks of the Susquehanna River on my Mormon mission. Really? Yeah. Uh,
2: did you hear they built a priesthood site there last summer?
0: No, a priesthood site. What is that?
2: It's, uh, they built um, a site where they give a free tour, and the church is there too. No kidding. Yeah, I've been on it many times.
0: Well, you, you live in a beautiful area of the country. What's happening, Sean?
2: Um, I was thinking, because I know in Mormon theology, uh, you have to be married to be in the highest Uh, Celestial kingdom. Yes. What does that mean? uh, Jesus had to be married to poor wives at the time?
0: It's a great question. And early LDS uh, uh, leaders uh, affirm that Jesus was married. Uh, If you look at the Joseph Smith translation of the uh, uh, King James New Testament, where the King James has Jesus come out of the tomb and he says to Mary, Touch me not. The Joseph Smith translation has Jesus say to Mary, hold me not. Don't embrace me as a wife would her husband. So it was was believed early on in the church that Jesus was married, and therefore he qualified for the highest degree of the uh, celestial kingdom.
2: Wow. Yeah. I'd find that in the Joseph Smith translation, or like how would I show that to the missionary?
0: Oh, you'd have to dig. I'd go to utlm.org. U T L M dot org, and just check out Jesus being married as a search engine, and th- I'm sure Sandra Tanner has tons of stuff that will come up to give you evidence for it. Oh, thank you. You should come to Susquehanna sometime on the tours. I'll come to and do the oh. priesthood tour. So, are you a Christian out there?
2: Yes, I I actually uh, secretly kind of evangelize to them, like I meet with them and try to give them truths here and there, but not really working
0: (laughs) well you know you're planting seeds sean that's what we all do we plant seeds and we pray god will will uh will water it and and grow it do me a favor stay on the line and we'll send you out uh uh, where mormonism meets biblical christianity face to face an a to z doctrinal compendium gives you like 56 different topics that will help you with uh things like your uh what you're talking about Ah, thank you so much yeah stay on the air my friend look forward to meeting you someday All right. I'll see you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. All right. Well, someone pick up and get Sean's address? Another email. Uh, This says, I don't know much about uh, your ministry. I just found you on the internet. I'm looking for help. I live in a nice community in Southern California. We have a strong Mormon presence in our city. My 11th grade daughter, who professes to be a Jesus follower and has been raised in a Christian family, has fallen in love with a boy who is a Mormon... The more I freak out about it, where she is at with the Lord and what she really believes, the more she seems to run to the boy. Oh, those damned teenagers. They are so, ha- they have no scruples at all. They just go wherever. Do you have any advice for me besides the obvious freaking out thing? You know, I do. And, 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 and let me just start at one end, which is the brutal, brutal, brutal news and work backward. The brutal news is that there is a chance your daughter would leave her faith from her youth and join Mormonism. Uh, Mormonism provides a tremendous instant family, and when someone is investigating and she's on the arm with her boyfriend who's active, they swarm in with love and cookies and fun dates that are moral, and you know a, a sort of a regiment of goodness well you're not seeing an r-rated movie are you and it gives this kind of a certainty to to the teen and they think why wow, i really must be involved in something good and so often we can lose our kids to mormonism and i'm just saying that as the brutal hard cold facts as we move off from that chances are that as you love your daughter and you help her to uh, uh you embrace the boy maybe you and your family can bring the boy over and and and, and and help him to see the truth. And so while they are trying their darndest by the flesh to incorporate her and assimilate her into Mormonism, maybe you and your family, uh, Julie and your husband and your, and your whatever can help bring that boy in through the same means, more love, more consideration, talk openly, don't get angry, don't force. Teenagers love rebellion. And you know this might be your chance for your daughter to exercise some rebellion. And even if it's rebellion to go to the Mormon church, we've seen a lot of that happen. So, you know, uh, try that. The other thing is, is uh, you're in Southern California. There's a lot of resources available. I would be more than willing to talk with your daughter and uh, her boyfriend uh, and uh, sit down, because I go to Southern California quite a bit, or have a phone conversation. If not me, somebody else. So there's some thoughts to it, but all along that spectrum, no matter what happens, don't lose your mind. Uh, Trust in God. Know that he has his uh, hand on you, and he will bring your children through. Uh, This is something that uh, has been brought to my attention. This is from Eric J. in Kalispell, Montana. We have people who are looking. Years ago, we used to do a thing where we had ambassadors out there in the United States And if you are from St. Louis, Missouri, we might have an ambassador in Missouri, one ambassador in that area who you might be able to call and relate to about Mormonism. We're getting more of that about people wanting to know about, can I relate to somebody about subjective Christianity? Somebody who's starting to see this a little bit uh, differently that I can relate to in the area. So keep that in mind. If you're somebody who lives in an area, kind of let us know, hey, I'm in Boston, Massachusetts. I'd love to talk to somebody. I've been a into subjective Christianity for a long time. I'm not into the church, et cetera, et cetera. And then we, we can start making these connections so people can start getting along. This is uh, from Sean, another Sean spelled the same way from the United Kingdom. He says, uh, you know, I've, I don't mean this email with any ill will. He's obviously LDS. He says, uh, I'm sorry for the way the LDS treat you on, this is old hat, he's watched some old shows. But I want to know what you think Joseph Smith's motives were. He gives the same thing. Why would he have done such a thing, uh, being so brutally persecuted for it, mocked, beaten, tarred, driven out of town, uh, everything in his life was difficult, etc., etc. I'd really like to know the answer to that. Well, a couple things. Uh, first of all, uh, you are taking one side of the Joseph Smith history the things that he suffered in terms of persecution. Was he tarred and feathered? He was. Did he get his tooth chipped uh, by them trying to drink something that was poison? Apparently he did. Uh, had, did he have, uh, was he driven out of places? He was. Things like that. But on the other hand, did he cause much of that? Was it heaped upon himself? Why did they tar and feather him? Well, he was hitting on uh, a guy's daughter. Knights. He was living at the knight's house and he was hitting on the daughter and the men got fed up with it. Uh, why did they drive him from town to town? Well, the Mormons were causing an uprising, economically and in other ways. So it's not all just one-sided when you hear the history. The second thing is, is Smith didn't have a lot going for him. He had a family that lived in poverty. They were in true, utter poverty. His father was a drinker until he uh, found the Lord. And a family that was torn apart by religion. They were at each other's throats over religion. They held Joseph Smith up as the savior to the family, even when he was a baby, according to his great-grandfather and his father. He's the one who's going to restore true Christianity back to the earth. So he had his family's poverty. Uh, he had a bleak future, and he had an ability to uh, persuade people, and he was good at it. He started off in hunting for uh, they called a money digger, and he put a rock in a hat, and he'd try to find money, and he'd Go and say, dig here and dig there. And a lot of people hired him. And he had an ability to convince them that he could see things that weren't there. All he did when he finally got arrested and was facing jail time for money digging, this is all historical document, he switched to religion. And he realized that he could get a following just like that. And uh, he had charisma. Uh, When it comes to suffering, you look at Waco. David Koresh. They lived out of that compound. They ended up being torched in flames, and he loved it, going out. He prophesied of it. Look at Jim Jones. They lived in Guyana in miserable heat and conditions, just so that he could be lord over his little fiefdom. So uh, Marx, Ginny von Westphalen, she, they lived in utter poverty complete poverty. Their children were sick and dying from lack of money to care for them. Their furniture was broken down apartments. They, they, they lived hand to mouth for decades. Why? So Marx could come up with the communist manifesto and Das Kapital and all the other stuff. It was the dream. It was the power. It was the hope. It was the suffering. So that argument for Joseph Smith is really not a good one. And it's seen through other people in, in just as dubious ways. So don't hold him up as this guy. You know, plus, he was getting a lot of chicks on the side. And Smith liked chicks. So that was a side benefit to it. Plus, people were giving him money for the, for the kingdom building, all of that. So there's a response for you. Uh, recovering Mormon here. Um, oh, it's too long. I can't cover it. From France, this is from a a woman in France, so you've been in the church for 40 years and think you know everything. Some people work for life and never get the promotion, never progress, so thinking you more than the prophet is quite the opposite of humility. Um, What she's doing is she's saying, listen, you you were in the church for 40 years, there's people who have been in the church for 80 years and they never get promoted, they never get this or that, you're bitter. Who do you think you are? You are are showing the opposite of humility. People who are truly humble stay in. They put their shoulder to the wheel and push along and do this stuff. And all I'm going to tell you is, you know, the truth shown everything else. And uh, I'm not going to even argue with it. I don't even know why I read it. Um, Byron of Calvary, uh, he asks, Can the unmarried go to live with Heavenly Father? The answer is they can enter into the celestial kingdom of Mormonism, but they can't live in the highest degree of the celestial kingdom. Entrance into the celestial kingdom, that's above the telestial and terrestrial, is baptism by someone holding the proper priesthood authority. That gets you into the door, but you're going to be a servant in that kingdom for everybody else who's in it if you aren't married. And then in the temple by someone holding the proper authority. So you have to be married to live in the highest degree and to become a God and to propagate future planets. So entering into the celestial kingdom between my thumbs is water baptism, gift of the Holy Spirit uh, by a Mormon, holding proper authority. But to get to the top level, you got to be married. So can the unmarried go to live with Heavenly Father? They can, but they go to live with Heavenly Father as a servant. Then, he says, can virgins go to live with Heavenly Father? And again, the same thing. They can, but as a servant, unless when they've entered into the celestial kingdom, one of the men who become gods, because they were married in the temple, decides to pick up that single woman and make her one of his after this life. That's the way that whole deal works. Uh, I'm glad my daughters are out of that. This is from Linda. As a little girl, we were strongly requested to bring in our allowance so we could figure 10%. So at about 10 or 12, I took my 34 cents, opened my hand, and learned how to count out four pennies to give it to the teacher. I remember my father pacing one night because he had to take his income tax forms into the bishop, and he had not paid his rightful tithing. He didn't know where the money would come from. We were poor. We ate pigeon. Rabbit and chicken, raised by my father, who had five children to feed. I never understood the teachings even as a child. I stopped going in eighth grade. My question is, can we ever ever gather a clash action suit and sue for our back tithing when we leave the church since it's not volunteered tithing? Something I've been thinking about. This isn't a novel idea, uh, Linda. it's a good one, but it's been tried. It's been tried, uh, I I even think here in the States, I know it was tried uh, overseas, and it hasn't held water because it is voluntary. Uh, You can be a member of the church in good standing and not pay your tithing. And that's how they get around that is through that loophole. Of course, if you are a member and you don't pay your tithing, you don't go to the temple, and therefore you're not temple worthy, and therefore there's a certain uh, ostracization that goes on for people who don't. Go to the temple, married, etc. So there's pressure on that. We know the score, but uh, when you say it's not voluntary, it has been deemed, I'm pretty sure by the law, as a voluntary giving. Unfortunately, I wish we could come up with a sign that says, "No matter," a billboard across the state of Utah, no matter who tells you, bishop, stake president, pastor, priest, no matter who tells you, uh to pay tithing, it's a lie. I wish we could put that up there. And I wish people, I wish, I wish Christians could have like a, a yellow tag that they could wear that is a T with a line going through it. And they can go to their church and it just starts spreading among all the people. And everybody in the congregation who comes to the local church, whether it's Mormon or Christian, is wearing one of these tees. And the pastor says, what is that tea thing everyone's wearing? And they say, it means no more tithing. I would love to see the faces registered when all the people start saying that. Does not mean you don't have to give? Does not mean you don't want to give? That's up to you and the Lord. But that tithing term, I mean, it's abused in the Mormons and it's abused in the Christian church as well firmly totally completely against it so with that join us next week remember matt slick 7 to 9 p.m here call us write us with your questions engage with matt we have a lot to talk about we'll see you here next week on heart of the matter i'm on the ride going nowhere
2: The dawn's waiting till a hundred monkeys know And I can feel the light-filled monkeys start